Okay, welcome to the Yo Renee Podcast. I am your host, Yo Renee Hopper, and today I'm going to talk about three oats. And I'm going to talk about the three oats with a good friend of mine, Simcha Herzog, who is a lawyer by day and a Talmud Chacham in the evening. I, uh, I, uh, I met him uh, uh, a couple years ago, and I was very impressed. And uh, Anyway, how are you doing, Simcha? Good. I, I, I aspire to the Talmud Chacham by evening. Uh, type of title. Right. I wanted to talk about three oaths. Now, I, because when I converted to Judaism, I uh, was into Satmar, that's why my name is my Hebrew name is Joel, the name I usually uh, use for the Dutch name that I use for the podcast. But, uh, so, and Satmar is, of course, known for his anti Zionism. Part of his anti Zionism is rooted in a, a little text that we refer to as three oaths of the Sukhstar. Um, and uh, I was going to give a, I wanted to record a lecture on it for a while already but then you uh, when I was sitting in one of your classes you brought them up and you, it was clear that you had studied them more in depth than I had and I figured why should I do all the hard labor and look everything up and I just can invite you on the podcast and then ask you the questions so what can you um, what, what can you tell us about the fields well, let's start at the beginning. Um, the first is that there's different versions. It's not necessarily three oaths. There could be two oaths, four oaths, six oaths, three oaths. So there's there's lots of different versions within Chazal of the oaths. What you're referring to in terms of the Gemara and Ksubis is the three oaths, which are really three out of six oaths. It may make sense to just name what they are, uh, for people's sake. Um, the the first oath is Shaloi Yalu Bachaima. Right, that they shouldn't go up like a wall. It's typically uh, been understood say by Rashi as Yachad Biyad Chazaka, they shouldn't go up in force, they shouldn't go up like armed. Uh, the second oath, that they shouldn't uh, rebel against the nations. And the third oath is that the nations, they shouldn't subjugate the Jewish people more than necessary. But that is really only three. Turns out the Gemara actually mentions there are six oaths, so there are three additional ones, and those are not really spoken about so much, but they are uh, you shouldn't divulge when the end is, uh, the messianic end, uh, you shouldn't push off the end, and you shouldn't reveal the secrets to the to the non-Jews. So that those are the oaths that are mentioned in the Gemara, but you're right, the Satmarav focused on the three, and that's his famous book um, was called the the Shalosh It was a, it's actually one chapter or one part of a three part book uh, where he talks about um, other topics also in relation to to Eretz Yisrael, but or, or Lashon Hakodesh. But the, certainly the one that we're talking about here is the is the most famous part of the book, 
uh, which is the Maimur Shalashvuas. He did write another book, which may be helpful for people who want to read, which is called Al Gulav Al which also deals a lot with the issue of Zionism. But of course, throughout his writings, throughout the Vayal Moshe, you'll find scattered references to the three oaths. Right. How did the Satma Rebbe interpret these three oaths? show that the Jewish tradition is against creating a Jewish state. The, the Satmar Rabbah took a very literal view of the three oaths and he applied them halachically. So, Shalai Yalu Bachayma, not going up like a wall with force, means that anything that offends or upsets the indigenous folks of the land of Israel means by definition that it is inappropriate to do. So by definition, creating the state of Israel offended uh, millions of Arabs and Muslims throughout the world. So by definition, it was inappropriate and a violation of that first oath of Shalai Yalu B'chayma. He goes a little bit further, I should be clear, that he also holds about the second oath of Shalei Merdubu Umais is also violated. Just because the United Nations gives its imprimatur at some point doesn't mean that the first and second aliyahs were correct. It doesn't mean that just because some nations within the United Nations allowed it, since so many nations did not allow it, you effectively go after the lowest common denominator. And since all the Arab nations surrounding it went to war with Israel repeatedly, it's always considered going up like a wall, and it's always considered rebellion against the nations. Does the Satmar Rebbe also deal, deals with the third one that says that the nations should not oppress us too much? So, the Satmar Rebbe uses that oath to rebut, to rebut those that, um, maybe a little bit of background is helpful. So the third oath uh, that the nations shouldn't subjugate the Jewish people more than necessary. What that even means is hard to know. What is more than necessary? Is genocide more than necessary? Is blood libels more than necessary? Is uh, inquisitions? At what point does it become more than necessary? It's not necessarily clear from the text. That, that's the same with Choma, right? Going up in a wall. What is a wall? It's, it's all kind of vague. It's hard to know. Yeah, Rashi says the Yachad you know, going up with strength. But in relation to not subjugating the Jews more than necessary, according to um, the pro-Zionist, the proto-Zionist, uh, if you will, um, they said that the oaths, whatever halachic obligations they engendered, those disappeared by definition because the non-Jews violated their oath. Because they subjugated the Jews more than necessary, therefore, the other oaths were not applicable. There's a beautiful Tanhuma actually, in uh, Devarim. The Tanhuma there talks about the oaths. The Tanhuma brings down the oaths a number of places, but in Devarim it brings it down one more time. And over there, it also brings down Nayach. But in, in, in Devarim, it brings down the oaths, and right next to it is a story of Yayav ben Suriah, David's general, going to fight against 
um, Aram. And the Arameans say to him, it's this week's parsha, right? Parsha's Boa. The, the Arameans say to him, what are you coming here to fight? We have a treaty. You remember uh, Lavan and Jacob, right? They made a treaty. So we have a treaty between the two of them that do not allow to cross over here to fight us. And Yoyev says, yeah, you're right. But you remember Bilam? Right? You remember Bilam? And this week Sedra said that he's going to be hired out by Balak to try to curse the Jews. So you abrogated this Shavua, this treaty between us. By virtue of you violating it, we're no longer obligated to adhere to it either. And therefore, they went along, and Yahweh went along and attacked the Arameans. So that argument was given by many of the Zionists. They said, what are you talking about? The Os, whatever halachic obligations they had, are no longer in force at all because the non-Jews violated their oaths by what they did to the Jewish people in, in, in all the blood-soaked territory of Europe and the Middle East over the centuries, we're no longer obligated to adhere to it. So on this, the Satmar Rebbe said, absolutely incorrect. Right? The Os, and, and this actually has made a very similar argument, is made by Rabbi Shamshan Raphael Hirsch. Right. Um, of course, it's not in the same milieu, in the same cultural context as the Satmar Rebbe. So the Satmar Rebbe perhaps wasn't even aware of him, but he certainly doesn't quote him. But they basically make the same argument, which is the Os stand independent. Just because the non-Jews are violating theirs doesn't mean the Jews are allowed to violate theirs. And according to the, the, the Zionists, it's not true. They're interdependent. If the non-Jews are violating theirs, we don't have to adhere to ours. Right. So uh, anti-Zionists, when they do their promotion thing, right, like when they try to promote their own ideology, they will bring up a lot of Kedolim who have said in the past uh, things against Zionism know that like uh, many of the leading economies, at least in Europe, were, were against Zionism in some form or another. But I always feel that give the impression that all the opinions that, that were against Zionism then also agree with the Satmarabi that Zionism is a violation of the oath, or they read the oath the same as the Satmarabi. In, in your study of the oath and, and of those works of those who protected Zionism, do you see that like there's a lot of agreement with the Sahrawi on this, or do they reject Zionism on other reasons? For other reasons, it's perhaps like different than something. Well, I I I think we have to put some context to the question. the The first is is that really until the middle 1800s, there's almost no discussion of the oaths at all in halachic literature. That's basically zero, with a few exceptions including like the morale of Prague uh, having a, a lot to say about the oaths um, and a, a line here or there that you can perhaps find um, is basically nothing in the halakhic tradition about the oaths. So it's not a question of it being uh, debated. There, there was simply no debate. There, there, whether or not you can read it sub silentio is a debatable point we can talk about it, but certainly there's nothing in the open halachic tradition about it. That's A. Again, I can go through the few exceptions where it does appear. Let's say, like I said, in the Maral, and the Kisvei Ramban, and the Geras Taman of Maimonides, there's a few places here and there where it talks about it, but almost nothing. Right. Um, from the 1850s, it becomes a cottage industry. 
and you know it's, it's, it appears everywhere, and everyone has what to say about it. Um, certainly, the rabbis who were prior to the Samarav, so for example, uh, Rabbi Shamsh and Raphael Hirsch, not not Hasidic at all, also held the oaths very strongly. Uh, the monk Hacharav, you know, preceded the Samarava, um, and was you know just as much a firebrand anti-Zionist. Very much was into you know yeah, into the, the Mechazalazer, yeah. Um, very much into the oaths and their and their power, um, <coughs> and really um, anyone from that milieu uses the oaths as a shorthand way of being anti-Zionist. There were those who were anti-Zionist not because of the oaths. They were those who were anti-Zionist because the state of, or there would be the proto-state of Israel, the Zionist Congress was populated by people who were not the adherents of, you know, the Sabbath observance and, and, and the 613 commandments. They were not Torah-observant Jews. So it wasn't the oaths that bothered them, it was the practitioners. Um, certainly there was that, but definitely the ones who are most famous are the ones who are ideologically against the existence of the state of Israel. Right, but no one wrote a book about it like the summer. A book solely dedicated to it? No. Right. So one of the arguments religious Zionists... Uh, so I, I have, I've moved away from the anti-Zionist position myself all the time. I'm just neutral now. Like, like I'm, I'm not the one to choose. But one of the arguments the religious Zionists often make is that the old is just a god of them. And if we don't drive a lot but when I look at the Gemara, it's Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi uh, Zera, they're arguing about moving somewhere or not moving somewhere. That's the context. They're actually debating whether uh, Rabbi uh, Zera should move to Eretz not or not. So it's they talk in a, in a talkless way. But then the style of the text itself is very, like, like from poetic psukim in, in uh, Shir Shirin. So what could you tell me about that? Again, <coughs> context is helpful. So Reb wants to move to the land of Israel, and his Rebbe Rebbe Huda says that it's a uh, prohibited because the puzzle says So you you have to be there until I remember you. The problem with looking at that in isolation is that if you go through all of the Gemara, Bavli, Rishamli, and Midrashim, you'll see that there was a train that went back and forth from the land of Israel to Babylonia. There were people going back and forth all the time. Right. So, certainly, the wide, the, the vast majority of people felt that there was no problem whatsoever to you travel... If you go through Shas, you will see numerous people moving from one place to another, living in one place to another, no issues at all. Hillel. This uh, Bavli, correct. He's one example, sure. Um, but, like, literally, there are not tens, there are hundreds of examples. Right. So, the idea that this was a major problem is it 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 challenges it beggars the imagination that that was a major issue because you don't find it ever mentioned elsewhere and it seems to the contrary that everyone's always doing it 
That's number one. Number two, in terms of the simple fact, the oath problem for Zionists is not merely the Agatha part of it. That is a part of it. But there's a bigger issue here. And that is the cancellation of a mitzvah midoraisa because of a Pusik in Jeremiah about the first temple vessels. Right. That's the issue. So then we come up with a new Pusik. That then becomes the big problem. A Pasuk in Shehashim is going to cancel out a, a, a mitzvah in the Torah. The entirety of the Bible is suffused with the land of Israel. It's not merely a mitzvah. It is the everything of the Jewish people. It is the national experiment. It is the way we are able to practically show our Jewishness in a way for the whole world to see, not merely in our attics, not merely in a religious way, but in a national way to be able to show what a country driven by religious ideals is able to exist as. That is the greatest sanctification of God's name is to be able to act in a national way according to the Torah's diktat. That idea to be challenged by a homiletic Gemara is the fundamental problem. There is, of course, the issue that you mentioned, which is, I got it, the Gemara is deciding halacha, and that's a general place throughout Shas. You will find numerous examples where we do, in fact, change halacha because of Agarata. The real specific problem here is that it didn't happen for a thousand years. In other words, from the time of the Siam of the Shas, from the time of the Stima of the Gemara, till 1850, there's basically no mention of it in the halakhic literature at all. Zero. There's literally not one mention. So then to wake it up and say it has halakhic significance by non-halakhic authorities like the Maral or like of Shamshir Fal Hirsch, that, and then now, and, you know, more lately, there's Munkacher and, and Samer, that becomes then like one second. Where's the halakhic tradition on it? It's not merely a Haggadah deciding halakha, which there are examples of, but it's an Haggadah deciding halakha and Johnny come lately. Skip the 1,500 years of tradition. How is it so latent? And all of a sudden it mushrooms out as, as, as black letter law? So those, I would say, are all the reasons that the pro-Zionists are not comfortable learning halacha out of Subas Kufir Aleph. Let me ask you some specific questions. So, the Rambam does not ma- mention the uh, social rules in Yad Chazaka, or in his commentary in Mishnah, but he does mention them in a letter to Teman. And uh, the Satmar he brings that, of course. That's like the famous uh, source he brings. Um, what... 
context is the Rambam bringing Christos Rules in the Indians of Tenor. And is that maybe relevant to strengthening the Samaritan's case in your opinion? The Samar Rabbah was a massive Talmud Chacham. He needs no he needs no imprimatur from me. The Satmar Rabbah had access on his fingertips to all of Torah. And so in his attempt to make his case, he certainly does bring down the reference from Igaris Taman where Maimonides is writing a letter to the poor people of Yemen who had a fake messiah uh, who was attempting to make some sort of quasi religion that merged and mingled Islam and Judaism together and was rebelling against the local authorities and in the context of that letter he says to them not to rebel, to be quiescent to follow a path of quietude and the way and the reason that he does that is in part because he cites the Shalashvuas the idea of according to the Satmarabha that is proof positive that Maimonides holds of the efficacy and the halachic validity and authority of the Shalosh such that he calls the Igeris Taman the tshuva that was written to Yemen, a halachic tshuva. Of course, it was called an Igeris, an epistle to Taman but he gives it the strength of a halachic responsum. And as a result of that, he says there's no need for Maimonides to actually write it in the Mishnah Torah because he's already taken care of it and shown you its halachic significance in the Igaris Tema. He, he, he argues that because he mentioned in the Garrison, he doesn't have to mention it in the. Uh, so Correct. That seems to me a little forced, to say lightly. Uh, a what? That seems to me a little forced, right? Because he also mentions not to follow false prophets in the Garrison. He does bother writing that. Right? Um, okay. There's an other source that I. Well, there's a bigger. Just to be clear, there's a much bigger problem with 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 the with the Satmar Rebbe's argument. There's a much more fundamental one. The the much more fundamental one is that the entire Gemara there is of Hakol Malin. That Mishnah, that Gemara is all about who can force someone else to move to the land of Israel, right? Which is, by definition, a repudiation of Rabbi Yehuda's position, right? Because if I want to make Aliyah, I can force my wife to. If she doesn't want to, she gets divorced without a get. Right. What about Rabbi Yehuda's prohibition? Obviously, it's non-existent. And it's not just me. It's also my wife. If she wants to move to the land of Israel and... I don't want to, she can leave and be getting a divorce by force with her ksuba. And it's not just my wife, it's my Eved, my servant. If he wants to move to the land of Israel, he can force the master to sell him to somebody in Israel or to go free. 
and Maimonides, unlike some Rishonim who understand it as talking about a Jewish servant, an Evid Ivri, understands it as talking about an Evid Kanani, a Canaanite servant, a non-Jew, somebody who has the mitzvot of a woman, can force the master to have him be sold to somebody in Israel or to set him free. And that, by the way, is in violation of a mitzvah in the Torah, that Canaanite servants should always be um, subjugated and, and not to be freed. So if Maimonides is holding like all of this, then clearly, clearly, at least at the individual level, there is no problem whatsoever of an individual making Aliyah to Israel at all. Now, it doesn't prove anything about going up together like a wall, but it does show very convincingly, in my opinion, that there is no issue whatsoever of Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Zera. This question about are you allowed to move to the land of Israel is by definition, according to Maimonides, not a question at all. It's a halakhically, not only is it valid, but is it absolutely a mitzvah? Because if it wasn't a mitzvah, you would not be able to do things that would violate other mitzvot. The only way you can violate a mitzvah is if you have a mitzvah to the contrary that's just as strong halakhically. So the mitzvah of moving to Israel must be strong enough, which will lead probably to another part of the conversation, but it must be strong enough and valid enough to overtake the mitzvah of keeping your servants forever. Right, interesting. So let's let's skip to uh, the mitzvah of use of the arets. That maybe brings, of course, he deals with the Ramban. The Ramban seems to imply, or straight up says it, that we have a mitzvah to go up there, Israel, and to conquer it. It seems to be communal. Um, and then the Ramban, uh, the Ramban, uh, the Satmar maybe brings, uh, I think it's Rashbash, he brings one of the one of Nachmanides' grandsons, great-grandsons, that says that uh, Nachmanides clearly didn't mean to violate the oaths. you know what I'm talking about? I'm not familiar with that, but I am familiar with the Megillus Esther. Uh, yeah, okay. So in the Megillus Esther, right, the, the, the context here is that Maimonides doesn't bring down the mitzvah of Yishavaretz as one of the 613. And the standard answer of the commentaries is that the reason he's not bringing it down as a mitzvah is because of the fact that it is either a national mitzvah, not an individual. So he doesn't have to count it because he doesn't count national mitzvot, communal mitzvot. Or it is a mitzvah that is so pervasive it is so effervescent, it is so in every second, then the Rambam says he's not going to count mitzvos that are always applicable. So a mitzvah like Kedoshim Tiyu is not understood by Maimonides in a limited way about, you know, uh, uh, Arias. It's understood as something that's always applying. Tum Tiyem Hashem These are mitzvos that are always apply, and therefore they don't get counted separately, because they're always in a, an application. There's never a time when that mitzvah applies. 
And there are those that understand that given the importance of the land of Israel in the Torah, since it appears everywhere, the Ramah didn't count it because it wasn't the specific mitzvah for a specific time. It was a mitzvah that can always be, uh, uh, um, uh, can, would always be applicable. But the Megillus Esther says that that's not correct. The Megillus Esther says, actually, this is an example of a mitzvah that's being canceled by the three oaths, um, which, again, is very interesting because, and probably for a separate podcast, of mitzvahs that have been canceled over time. Uh, according to the Megillus Esther, the mitzvah of Yishavaretz was canceled and it was canceled because of the three oaths. That is to say, the Agatha Gemara of the three oaths comes along and cancels out a mitzvah daraisa. And the Ramam really would have counted as a mitzvah, but he didn't because of the applicability of the three oaths. And this is perhaps one of the biggest arguments, along with the Maral of Prague, that the Samarav bases his whole entire argument on. Um, the question really is, is the Megillus Esther correct? And as I you know, have attempted to show, is that certainly the Rambam felt on an individual level that there was a mitzvah of Yishev Arts for sure. I can't prove it on a communal level, but certainly on the individual level it seems to be for sure that he held that there was a mitzvah that was applicable to this very day. Well, he's certainly right that you can't leave Eretz Yisrael if you don't have a I'm not just talking about that part of it. For sure, he does, he does write that, yes. Right, and over there he criticizes and condemns Machlon and Chilion. Right, that they were the great members of their generation. Right, and because of a, 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 a famine, right, because of a, a, a terrible tragedy, it was a terrible situation they left because of a... It wasn't the easy. They didn't leave because they just wanted a check out the sites in another country. They left because it was a famine. They left because of tragedy. And they were still punished. Uh, and all those, what you're referring to there, the Maimonides brings down all those Gemaras, Agatha Gemaras, about the importance of the land of Israel. How the rabbis would roll around in the dust when they would get there. And how they, how um, it's better to live in a, a city in Israel right, that is full of non-Jews. Right, than to live in a city outside of Israel that is full of Jews. So the whole idea that Maimonides didn't view the land of Israel as something special, utterly absurd. In fact, if you look at Maimonides' laws in the sanctification of the new moon, in Hilchus Kedas HaChodesh, he's very clear that the only way Judaism survives is because of the Jewish calendar. And the only way the Jewish calendar survives is because we have Jews in Eretz Yisrael. If we didn't have a Jewish community in the land of Israel, the Jewish calendar would have no efficacy, and therefore the Jewish community would no longer be extant. So, by definition, Maimonides holds there has to always be a Jewish community in the land of Israel in order to be able to keep the Jewish calendar around. Right. Let me ask a question about the, uh, the second oath. So, uh, I heard, I never read the Maral inside, actually. But, uh, but I heard that he took the second oath not to rebel against the nations, the Maral thought, but to rebel against so extreme that, like, you, he said you should, you should lay down your life before you even pick up weapons against the nations. 
Is that is that correct, or am I just No, Maral has a very strident take on the three oaths. He says essentially that even if the nations of the world were to sing hosannas and hallelujahs and welcome you into the land of Israel, you would still not be allowed to go. That is, without the divine imprimatur, without Hashem coming and sending the Messiah, we are not allowed to go into the land of Israel. He goes even further than the three oaths in prohibiting going back to the land of Israel. Also for individuals. It can't be talking about individuals because individuals have always gone. The heirs to the morale of Prague and the chief rabbis of Prague after him some of them in fact did make Aliyah right? like the Shlah and others um, so it's hard to believe that he actually um, felt that on the individual level but certainly on the communal level absolutely he felt that very strongly that the three oaths were powerful but they weren't powerful in the way that the Gemara would even put them, they were more powerful in the way the Gemara put them. They are binding forever and ever, and no matter what cannot be changed, even if all the Gaim are begging you to come to the land of Israel, you may not go communally. Right. Right. Um, is that, I think what else I can bring. Oh, the Or I wanted to ask you, you know about the Or uh, saying that the nations gave permission? I don't, I don't, in what concept is that, that not to rebel against the nations, I guess, when the, the what's it called, the Balfour Declaration came? Yeah, uh, so the, the Ursa Me'ach is one of those who felt that the three oaths have been abrogated, so now we're on the side of the pro-Zionists. It's hard, I have never found the letter of the Ursa Me'ach. Um, the letter that I found is printed in Hatzikuf HaGadayla by Rabbi Mendel Kasher. Who was a super genius, um, you know, the author initially of the Torah Shlema, among many, many other books and, and articles and periodicals, etc. I mean, the man was what a what a mind. Um, there are those that have accused him of forgery, not Kufa of putting in letters and saying people signed the letters, but sometimes the rabbis didn't know what they were signing, um, and so I'm not so sure that everybody would necessarily agree that Ramir Simcha wrote such a letter, but the letter that he does have in the Hatzikufa Gedayla is a letter of various versions that the Zionists have used over time, which is the nations gave us the imprimatur. So as you know, before the United Nations, there was a League of Nations, and there was a council um, between these nations in San Remo in 1920. This is after the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration was on the part of the United Kingdom. But San Remo was all the nations. It was like a proto-United Nations. So, by virtue of the fact that they said that they looked favorably upon creating a nation-state for the Jewish people in the land of Israel, they said that's permission enough. In the same way that the, later on they said that the, the 1948, the United Nations uh, uh, sign-off was enough. 
In the same way, the Balfour Declaration was enough. In other words, is if you want to take the oaths with significance, halachically, the question is, well, at what point do you say it's in the realm of the absurd? In other words, if the Balfour Declaration is being done by a country that controls the land of Israel, do you have to get somebody else's heter? Or is it enough that you have the United Kingdoms? According to the Satmarav, effectively, every single Arab in the world, every single Muslim has to say, okay, if there's somebody who doesn't, even if it's like, you know, Bahrain, right, or one of the Emirates, or even one person in one of the Emirates, that should be enough to say no. So, at that kind of a way, you're never going to find a way to get permission. Right. But, but to be clear... At the end of the day, he does have a point. Because with all the Balfour and all the San Remo and all the United Nations in 1948, there were still five countries who were willing to lay down you know, their lives and honor to go fight the nascent state of Israel. Right. And then repeatedly fight it over the years. So the idea that somehow this was accepted by, by folks is difficult to believe. The Vatican couldn't make you know, relations with the state of Israel for, for, for nearly two decades after it was created. So the idea that the major monotheistic faiths were somehow okay with it, very difficult to say. And in that sense, I think he has a valid point. The question is, okay, so let's say he's right, he has a valid point. The question is really, so what? Right? So what? Why does it have to do with anything with my halachic way of leading my life? That's really the question. I, but I do think it's foolish to argue that because of one of these conferences that the halakhic significance goes away. Okay, but what about the meta-significance of what it's trying to get at, which is we're in a diaspora. We're supposed to meant to be in the galut. We're in exile. We shouldn't be acting prideful. We shouldn't be acting as though, you know, we own it. We control it. I'm walking around with our head held too high. In that sense, certainly the state of Israel has given the Jews a swagger that they didn't have for thousands of years. Right. So, I don't want to take it too long. I know you have, you have other things to do with your life. Um, what is your personal take on it? I mean, it's pretty clear you, you are probably more on the Zionist side, but you, you are very sympathetic also to the suffering. Like, don't brush him away. Like, like often these debates, both sides, they, they just brush the other way. Like, it's so obvious to everyone. Side is correct. But, so what is your personal take on it? What is your... I think like everything else, there's a um, there's a validity to both sides. The Samarab was a great Talmud Chacham. He may have been very acerbic, he may have been strident, he may have been a little bit too obsessed with the topic, but it doesn't change the fact that he was a world-class scholar and I don't buy into the idea that this was all psychologically a way of dealing with, you know, getting saved by this. I, I don't accept that. Maybe it's true. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. But to me, I, I try to take the substance of the arguments, um, you know, drown out the, uh, the noise about the, the insults, and just look at it substantively. Uh, on this, I would quote to you the Mishnah in Avais, where we know that it's actually this week's... Um, this week's parsha again, right? The Mishnah tells us that, uh, yeah, we're lucky now with this week's parsha, um, right? The the Mishnah tells us that what's a 
uh, an idea of a machloikas that is going to be l'shem uh, shemayim. That's a machloikas of Shammai and Hillel. Right, and what's the um, um, definition of a machlegis that won't be l'shem shemayim? Machlegis of kerech v'adaser. And how do you know the difference? The difference is because one will last and one will not last. A machlegis l'shem shemayim lasts. It stands the test of time. And it seems to me now this argument is actually a very deep root because one of the citations that the Satmarov has in the Shalashvuas is to the Kisveh Ramban. Where Ramban brings down the three oaths. And now here's the context. The Gemara tells us in Yuma that Meshlakish hated the Babylonians. He hated the Babylonians because he said that the Babylonians, they didn't return. Right? That's why the, they were punished. The Levim were punished. That the, the, the tithing that would normally have gone to them was taken away. They didn't make Aliyah. When the tithe, the Babylonian Jews. Babylonian Levites did not make Aliyah when the second temple was rebuilt. They stayed in Babylonia. Life was too pleasant. And the question is, for Rish Lakish, whether he's right to hate these Babylonians. Because Rish Lakish says that the Babylonians really had come up en masse. And the words in the Gemara are, Kachayma. If they would have come up like a wall, then the second temple wouldn't have been destroyed. And Rabbi Yechanan tells him, you're not right. Reish Lakish, you're wrong. Even if the Babylonians had come up en masse, the Beis HaMikdash Hasheni would still have been destroyed. Reish Lakish doesn't give in, but the Gemara puts it as a machlekes between them. That is to say, there was a debate between Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Shlakish close to 2,000 years ago in relation to whether or not the Babylonian Jews should have come up like a wall. If it would have helped, Rish Lakish says it would have, Rabbi Yechanan says it would not have. If you look at the Ramban, that they're quoted by the Satmarav, he says that you know why the Babylonians didn't come up for the second temple? It was because they didn't want to come up like a wall. They didn't want to violate the oaths. He says that perhaps this is why. He doesn't say for sure, he says perhaps this is why they didn't want to come up. If he's right, then it shows you that this question of going up like a wall, because remember, in the time of the Second Temple, Jews never had, really had full independence. They were always a vassal state. They were in the First Temple. They were always stuck between, you know, Persia, or Babylonia, Assyria, and and Egypt. In the Second Temple, it's more of the same, but they had less power. So, there's a debate, it seems, sounds like, perhaps, according to the Ramban, about whether or not they should have gone up like a wall when Cyrus and Darius, etc., when they had permission to come back. It seems to me that perhaps these 
debates are actually part of a much wider debate. And that much wider debate is a debate among the prophets themselves. And that is, if you look, I love to quote, but I have it soon. Um, we say every day by the by the davening, We say, God, please return to us. You return to us and we'll return to you. But God tells us, Shuva Yisrael, Shuva Arashem Elokechem, the Jewish people should return to me. So who's first? Who makes the return first? And the prophets is debated. Do we go up? Do we make the return? Or does he? And I think that that debate is really what's underlying in this Gemara. It's really what's been underlying for 2,000 years. It's not a new debate of the Satmars and the Zionists. It's perhaps a debate that's been going on for a long time. Again, the way it's prosecuted in some places is not the right way. That I think we can all agree on. But the fundamental question of should we be back in our national state acting with pride and swagger without God, without adherence to the commandments, without acknowledgement of the gift of most fundamentally of life itself, forget the land of Israel, of the very existence itself. This, I think, is a real question, and I don't think that that can just be poo-pooed away as being a non-issue. I think it's a real issue. So if you're asking where I come out on practically, practically I come out on a very simple thing, that the best thing for the Jewish people is security. We didn't get into tonight, I don't know if there was time, to talk about Rabbi Soloveitchik and other approaches to Zionism that are non-Messianic. Approaches to Zionism that are practical, that are based upon more simple approach, which is, it seems that the Jews have been more protected for the last 75 years than they have in the last 2000. And what's good for the Jewish body politic, I am behind. Even if that means violating the three oaths. Okay, Skoya, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You should definitely do this again sometime uh, on other topics. Uh, I, I know, I'm, not, I'm just going to praise you. That's how it is. I really love always hearing your Torah. Like it, just, it just flows out. It's fantastic. And I'm really glad you came on my podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos.